to Listen Closely with John and Chris. I am John, and I am coming to you from a rainy and slightly raw northeast corner of the United States, and I am joined in the far opposite corner of the United States by my partner in crime, the cream to my godly. Chris, are you there? I'm here. Hello, John. How'd you like that uh, godly and cream reference, by the way? Where I it's, not, it's not where I expected it to go, but I'm, I'm glad it did. That's fantastic. You don't hear a lot about godly and cream anymore, but that was one hell of a side project, I tell you. Oh, my God. What was their big one? Cry. You Cry. don't know how to ease my pain. Yeah, well, watch it. We don't have the rights. Don't go too far with that. Uh, I really, you know, they'll only, um, I think it's only an issue if uh, you play the original song. If you have somebody singing it and it sounds nothing like it because it's terribly off key. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Kevin Godley and Lol Cream are not coming after us for, uh, for royalties. Trust me, I, I don't think that's an issue. Fair enough. Fair enough. But you never know. I mean, listen, we might have to do a 10cc episode at some point. Great band. Great band. Great, great band. But uh, listen, we've got one hell of an episode uh, this week. This is a heavy mother of an album. Chris, do you want to intro it? I do. We are heading back to late, right around this time in 1970, 50 years ago. Yes. Uh, Derek and the Dominoes. The album is Layla and Other Assorted Love Songs. Wow. And calling them love songs is really quite a statement. Uh, this was released almost 50 years ago to the day, right? Uh, the 9th of November, yeah. 1970. And this is what many feel is the crowning achievement in the career of Eric Clapton. Now, that's quite a statement, Chris. I, I'm sure you would agree, considering just how prolific Clapton is as both a guitarist and a singer-songwriter. This is, after all, the man that has given us cream, blind faith, a whole slew of solo hits and Grammys. I mean, he's the true definition of a guitar god, a rock god, a real survivor. Um, but this album really is... Is something that contains some of his most amazing work, I think. And you and I were discussing this, Chris, uh, in preparation for this, and we both agree that this is a difficult album to sit through. It's a noisy, sweeping, heroin-laced <laughs> 75-minute ode to Clapton's best friend's wife. And I think in 1970, this was something that was sort of like unheard of. You didn't you didn't record songs. You didn't record entire albums about this. And um, I don't know. I feel like listening to this album is sort of like watching Schindler's List in its entirety. <laughs> it's, you know, it's epic. It's beautiful. It's a, it's a real masterpiece and something that I think everyone should be required to experience at least once in their lifetime. But, man, it can be tiring, long, and it can leave you really exhausted and drained when it's over. Yeah, it had been a while since I had listened to this whole thing, uh, you know, all together in a row before these past couple weeks. And, you know, I think I forgot just how 
just how draining it is. I mean, these are, you know, like you said, to call them love songs is, uh, doesn't really fully capture it. It's more like rip your heart out and stomp on it songs. Um, and do it in a very noisy manner. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's grueling. There's a, there's a lot of very long songs. Um, yes. There's a lot. It's a very long album. It is, yeah, about an hour and 15 minutes. And, um, you know, it's kind of, the, a lot of the songs I think have this, as they go on, this sort of repetition to them. You know, it's, it's very heavily blues, I would say, in, in some parts more than rock. And, Absolutely. Uh, you know, it just has that, like, my woman left me, my dog left me. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to drink, I'm going to shoot up, and I'm just going to let myself go to shit. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's grueling. And I think there's, you know, we, we use, I was thinking, listening to this, we often talk about people that we think are men's men. And, um, but I think we use the term differently than most. I think most, most people think of a man's man as, you know, sort of the big lumberjack, you know, with the beard, like self-sufficient, you know, can uh fix the plumbing and right. with you and I it's more like it's more somebody who's who's very cool and has a lot of potential but has sort of this fatal flaw to them <laughs> um, I, I always use the example Chris our definition of a man's man so the you know, layman's terms or, or the rest of the population of the world uh, will refer to a, a young, handsome Elvis Presley singing blue suede shoes and swinging his hips as a man's man. Uh, you and I will refer to the mid-1970s era Elvis Presley clad in the white leather jumpsuit, the big sunglasses, about 60 pounds overweight, sweating bullets and doing karate moves on stage as the man's man. It's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. Right. Because really, I mean, <laughs> all of us men at the end of the day were were fucked up and flawed, and that's what it's <laughs> that's what it's all about. And listening to this, I just I was like, this is such a our definition of man's man album. You have this guy who's lusting after you know. I mean, he's this incredibly successful uh, guitar god. He, you know, the kind of guy you'd think would have everything. Um, but the woman he wants is with <laughs> maybe the one guy in the world who's cooler than him, George Harrison. And, uh, right. you know, uh, Patty Boyd. Um, and he is just in love with her and it just tears him apart. And, you know, going through this album, it's like it leaves him just this rumpled pile of garbage on the floor. Um, you know, and that's the thing because Clapton is a god at this point. It's 1970. He's coming off of Cream, which was like the quintessential power trio. Yeah, uh, and he was in the Yardbirds before that. He's got the world by the the short and curlies, if you will. Yeah, and um, he is he could have any woman he wants. And he wants the one woman he can't have. And listen, I mean. Patty Boyd must have been incredible in the sack because, <laughs> you know, not only did she inspire this entire album, but she was also the inspiration behind something, which was George Harrison, arguably 
Harrison's mm-hmm. biggest hit with the Beatles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then a few years after this album's released, Wonderful Tonight, which was one of Clapton's biggest solo hits, right. was inspired by Patty Boyd. Yeah, I mean, she's, uh, she's like the Helen of Troy of mid-70s rock. I mean, she's the face that launched a she thousand ships. launched a thousand ships. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Yeah. I think also, too, and, and I think we, we definitely want to get back to the, the backstory because that's kind of the backbone of this album. Um, but it's also, Derek and the Dominoes, I think it's one of rock's first examples of supergroup hmm. because you've got Clapton at the helm. As, as I mentioned a moment ago, Clapton is, is God at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but then if you look at who he surrounds himself with, uh, Bobby Whitlock on piano and sometimes mm-hmm. vocals, yeah. who co-wrote some of the songs with him. Uh, he played with the likes of the Rolling Stones, John Lennon, George Harrison, Sam and Dave. Mm-hmm. Uh, the late Carl Radle on bass was a noted session musician who played with George Harrison, Joe Cocker, Leon Russell. Uh, Jim Gordon, who was sort of an unsung hero of drumming, in the 1970s. He played with anyone and everyone. Uh, he played on the Beach Boys Pet Sounds album, Harry Nilsson's Nilsson Schmilson album. Mm. Uh, he played on tracks with John Lennon, Steely Dan, Neil Diamond, many others. So perhaps most notably, I don't know if you knew this, um, he bludgeoned his mother to death in uh, the early 1980s. Is that right? Ugh. Yeah. If you wonder what happened to Jim Gordon, uh, he is currently incarcerated. Uh, he was such a drummer that I guess he drummed his mother's head. In. Oh, my um, God. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I did not know. And, <laughs> well, now you know. And, um, of course, the album also featured Dwayne Allman, who would die, die tragically less than a year after the album's release. And I think this is important to note. I mean, there's very few examples in rock history where you have a dueling guitar duo like Eric Clapton and Dwayne Allman on this album. Mm. I mean, maybe the Mick Taylor era of the Rolling Stones when you had him and Keith Richards together, mm-hmm. or maybe the Hotel California album with Joe Walsh and Don Felder together. But I think this trumps all the others. Um, in fact, in Clapton's autobiography, he referred to Allman as the musical brother I never had but wished I did. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I think when you combine that and the crazy-ass backstory, uh, you've got the makings of one wild ride. You do. You do. And, and what you end up with is a, a pretty chaotic album that wasn't really appreciated for, for a while. Um, it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, the critics were... Critics were I mean, I don't know if we want to jump into the critics yet, but just generally, it was it was not well received when it came out in nineteen, you know, late nineteen seventy. It was not. Um, upon its release, the album was a bit of a critical disaster uh, and a commercial one as well. It failed to chart in England and it peaked at number sixteen in the U.S. The Saturday Review, which is a now defunct men's lifestyle magazine, not unlike uh, Esquire described the album as pointless and boring. They called it a basket case of an album. Um, Melody Maker said that the album, despite some good songs, contained a few lengths of complete boredom. Uh, But over the years, I think the status and the legend of this album grew. 
the Chicago Sun-Times called it arguably the greatest blues rock album ever made. Rolling Stone ranked it number 117 in their original top 500 albums of all time. I think it should be a little higher. Mm. Um, but I think it was American rock critic Dave Marsh who summed up the album best. In the Rolling Stone Illustrated History of Rock and Roll, Marsh wrote, there are a few moments in the repertoire of recorded rock where a singer or writer has reached so deeply into himself that the effect of hearing them is akin to witnessing a murder or a suicide. To me, Layla is the greatest of them. Wow. That is, that hits, hits the nail on the head. I mean, you know, when you step back from it and just look at, here's this guy who, he kind of wanted to get away from his fame in a way, you know, I mean, he, he starts this band and um, kind of wanted to have more of a band than a, of like a Eric Clapton vehicle, you know? Correct. Um, and, you know, so he's in this band and it's called Derek and the Dominoes. He's, you know, he's got a different name in it. He's, uh, he's singing about Layla, which he's not really singing about Layla. It's almost like he's, he has this, this pain that he needs to get out, but he can't really do it as Eric Clapton. And so he's almost like inhabiting a different persona and just, uh, yeah, going through with this suicide, like, like the critic said there. Um, it's brutal. And do you know where Layla comes from as a name? No. So he was inspired by reading some like 11th or 12th century Persian poet named Nizami, mm. who wrote these, I guess, these long-winded poems to um, his mute, who was a woman by the name of Layla. And uh, that's, that was part of the inspiration to call the, well, that was the inspiration to call the album Layla. But I agree with you. I think he created this almost this alter ego, this band to uh, support him and get him through what was this harrowing, awful uh, addiction to both heroin and his best friend's wife. And, you know, the, the irony, Chris, is that there was sort of a happy ending to all this. Um, in that Boyd would eventually leave George Harrison in the mid-1970s and get with Eric Clapton. And oddly enough, George Harrison and Eric Clapton would remain best friends until George Harrison's death in 2001. But Clapton and Patty Boyd, after all this shit, yeah. would get divorced in 1989. Yeah, I know. That's the most unbelievable, <laughs> unbelievable part. Um, well, apparently she was tired of his heavy drinking, which would continue well yeah. through the 80s. And he had like a whole boatload of women on the side. But when you're Eric Clapton, you can do that. <laughs> um, but I guess if I'm understanding correctly, the final nail in the coffin was he impregnated an Italian model named Lori Del Santo. Oh. Uh, and he would have a child with her. And that was the son who took a header out of a high-rise apartment oh. in Manhattan in 1990. Right. Wow. So I mean, this album, just like, was the 
not only was there just terrible shit that Clapton was going through leading up to and recording this album, but it was almost like it would continue throughout uh, the relationship with Patty Boyd, which I think was troubled for a while, and <laughs> then straight through the late 80s and early 90s for him. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a wild story. And I mean, his life is a wild, my God, a wild life. Uh, As I said at the beginning of this, I mean, he's a true rock and roll survivor. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned uh, Nizami. I think the song I Am Yours is actually based on one of those poems. It is. That's yeah. correct. The lyric is not Clapton's lyric. It is verbatim uh, Nizami's prose. Yeah. So it's an interesting, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff. Several covers on this album. Um, there's a Hendrix cover. Lots of That's right. Figures. It's a real, a real uh, mishmash of sources of pain. It is. And what do you think? Should we get to our picks? Let's do it. Let's do it. So tell me you're Nadir. This was really tough for me. Um, tougher, tougher than most weeks, I would say. Um, and I think, I think the reason is the musicianship, you know, you referenced that there probably has, there have been very few, if any, guitar tandems uh, in rock and roll history, like the one on this album with uh, Allman and Clapton. And I think when you have that, it, it makes it really hard to have a bad song. Um, you know, we've talked a little bit about this with like, with Eddie Van Halen dying recently. Um, you know, it's hard to have a total waste of a Van Halen song, even if you're not big on the song, because you knew at some point Eddie was going to come in and have a solo and just show you something you'd never heard before. Of course. Uh, and it's a little bit like that on this. I, I kind of liken <laughs> it to going to a uh, Chicago Bulls game in, in the 1980s. You know, the, the Bulls might lose at that point, but with the young Michael Jordan, like you were going to see some shit that you'd never seen before. <laughs> so there's no song on this album that I, that I don't think is good or where the musicianship isn't good. Um, but I had to kind of try to think of it as more as an album and what, what fits and the, the ebb and flow of it. And I think, you know, there's, I believe there's nine originals and five cover songs on this album. And I think several of the covers are, are great. I mean, all of them are very well done. I think several of them are really, um, really fitting too. Like I think, um, Have You Ever Loved a Woman, um, which is a cover of a Billy Miles song, the, the Hendrix cover, The Little Wing. Um, I the think Wing's it's beautiful great. the way they do it, yeah. But I think, you know, the, the last song on the second, uh, I guess it's the second, uh, second side of the album, uh, Key to the Highway. Um, you know, it's a classic blues song. They play the shit out of it, but it's nine minutes and 43 seconds, I think. And 9.47, and I, it, it just goes on as good as they are at it. It just goes on and I feel like it kind of disrupts the flow. I mean, they, they have so much great original material 
on this album. I don't know that they needed to have five covers, you know, many of which are, are taking up six, seven, eight, nine minutes at a, at a chunk on this album. I, I think you're going too easy on this song and some of the covers because I am in 100% agreement with you that Key to the Highway is the endear of this album. Um, yeah. But for me, it was, it was kind of an easy choice. Uh, but I agree with everything you, you just said about it. And you said a lot about it. <laughs> but uh, I, I just feel like coming on the heels of the first six tracks, most of which are exceptional, you get to this bloated, nearly 10-minute blues rocker, which is complete with a two-and-a-half-minute instrumental jam intro. Yeah. Uh, I think it, it threatens to derail the entire album, in my opinion, because the album had such momentum going for it. Uh, you know, you open up with I Looked Away, Bell Bottom Blues, Keep On Growing. Uh, and then just prior to this song was any day and I am yours. No, and then you get to this. It's amazing, right? And yeah. and then you get to this and it's just too much. It's too much. It's too long. In my opinion, there's no need for this 10-minute uh, blues guitar duel. Um, and, you know, oftentimes I would get this song confused, Chris, with track 10, Have You Ever Loved a Woman, which I think is also the same thing. It's yeah. just a little too long and a little too loud. Um, the only thing I could say for Have You Ever Loved a Woman is it's a more pleasurable listening experience than having to sit through Ryan Adams' Have You Ever Loved a Woman. <laughs> uh, agreed. I think we're both agreed on that one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That could be the Nadir of the 1990s. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't mind the Have You Ever Loved a Woman uh, on this one. Um, it's not a highlight for me, but I don't mind it. But yeah, this one, um, it's just, it's just so long and it just keeps going. And you're right. It has, the album has a, you know, as there are some, some kind of long rambling songs, but it has a really nice rhythm and pace to it and mix. And then you get there and it's just, you know, it's like, all right, let's, let's and it's to have it not even, to have it be a cover, I think makes it doubly um, disappointing because, you know, you're not even getting like an original, sort of original take from them. Um, right. So yeah, I, wow, okay, so we're in agreement there. Why devote 10 minutes to a cover? Yeah, yeah, I mean, especially when you've got so much good stuff of your exactly. own. Exactly. Yeah. But you know that somewhere we're gonna have some hardcore Clapton blues fans listening to us being like, these guys are assholes. <laughs> well, you know, that's why I hedged it so much at the beginning because I think, you know, the, to be fair, the musicianship is great on this. And I think if you, were, outstanding. If you were just gonna listen to this in a vacuum, you know, pop it on mm. today, like, yeah, there's, it, it's great. It's great. But yeah, absolutely. Like, I think there's going to be people who are like, but you don't get it, man. You're not, you don't, you don't understand. Everything's got to fit into this preconceived album package. I, no, no, it no, it doesn't. But to have a 10 minute <laughs> cover, no. I, it's it's obnoxious. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, with that in mind, would you go with as your sleeper moment of the album? I think there's a couple interesting sleeper choices here. There are. Um, in the end, 
I went with the very last track, Thorn Tree in the Garden. Oh, beautiful song. Beautiful. Yeah. And, you know, what I like about that one is, first off, it's, it's just a very quiet, beautiful song. It's a great way to end the album. Um, but I also like that it's, it's written and sung by Bobby Whitlock. Yes. I think is kind of a sleeper on this album himself. Um, you know, I mean, Clapton obviously is, is the headliner and uh, having Allman there, he's, you know, such a huge name. But Bobby Whitlock, man, he's got an amazing voice. He, he, was, a, he was a talent, is a talent. And um, I don't know if he's still around, but um, regardless. He is. Is he? Yeah. Yeah, he's the only other surviving member of um, Derek and the Dominoes who is not deceased or incarcerated. <laughs> wow. Wow. Okay. In fact, there's a beautiful um, video you can watch on YouTube from the Jules Holland show in England uh, from 2000 on the 30th anniversary of the album's release. And it's Bobby Whitlock and Eric Clapton doing Belmont Blues with a full band, and it's, it's incredible. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, he, I mean, he's, there's several tremendous moments from him. I mean, I love, I love his backing vocals in any day. Um, yes. But this one, it's such a beautiful song too. I mean, you know, the song ends, it's, it's such a way to end the album too. And if I never see her face again, I never hold her hand. And if she's in somebody's arms, I'll know I'll, I know I'll understand, but I miss that girl. I still miss that girl. Maybe someday soon, somewhere. And that's beautiful. It's haunting. It's beautiful. It's such the perfect way, I think, to end this massive juggernaut of an album, um, which an album which is so often noisy, yeah. uh, ends on this very plain, mellow, acoustical note, and it's just it's it's very moving. Absolutely, yeah. So I, I think that's kind of a perfect, for me, a perfect sleeper. I read somewhere that it was one of the last or the last song they recorded on the album and that the five of them just sort of uh, sat around in a circle and um, rolled, the tape, rolled the tape and that was it. Wow. And it was, you know, unlike the other songs, which really took a, a lot more work, they just all gathered in a circle and uh, did it once, and that was that. That's awesome, man. That's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful song. Yeah. What, um, what a, what, can we talk for a moment? What a title of a song. Thorn Tree in the Garden. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm, I'm curious. What did you go with for your sleeper? So, like you, I think that there's, Probably three or four really strong sleepers on this album. I almost went with that. I also almost went with the leadoff track. I looked away. Oh, um, great. Such a great leadoff track. Oh, it's incredible. But in the end, I went with a song that I've been a fan of for probably a good 20 years now. And I think it's one of, I actually think it's one of Clapton's finest moments. And I think it's a true definition of sleeper in the sense that it's a real deep cut and it's so damn mellow that it gives the listener a much needed chance to catch their breath uh, almost halfway through the album. I'm referring to track number five, I Am Yours. Mm. I, 
love the bossa nova vibe that this song has going for it. You know, the, the bongos and that acoustic guitar, the slide guitar, and and Clapton's vocals um, are just beautiful. The uh, guitar work is great, and it's set to Nizami's hauntingly beautiful poetry that we discussed a few moments ago. And I love how it's just the same lyric repeated over and over again for almost four minutes. Uh, I am yours, however distant you may be. There blows no wind, but wafts your scent to me. There sings no bird, but calls your name to me. Each memory that has left its trace with me lingers forever as a part of me. And again, they repeat that for all throughout the song for close to four minutes. Um, I feel like it could have gone on even longer. That should have been the 10 minute song on the album, as far as I'm concerned, not, not heat of the damn highway. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I agree with what you said there about, you know, it's a perfect time too. I mean, um, to have it in there, the, the first, the first four songs are fantastic. I, I looked away, bell bottom blues, keep on growing. Uh, and then the cover, nobody knows when. Yes you when you're down and out um you know and i feel like at that point in the album they're doing a lot of great kind of mixing and matching um you know they follow that up with any day which is a real more up-tempo um you know just a great powerful song um but yeah at that point i think it's a perfect song uh, for that point in the album and it's beautiful it really is. I never, ever get tired of that song. I just love the, like I said earlier, the that kind of bossa nova groove that is going for yeah. it. Um, it just, I don't know, it, it works incredibly well. Exactly where it is on the album, too. I think it's, it's absolute perfection. Yeah. Uh, but speaking of what we consider to be absolute perfection, I'm really curious to know <laughs> what you chose as your zenith of this 75-minute um, bombastic album oh i think you know what i picked uh to me this was never in doubt uh second track bell bottom blues one of the great songs of all time um so powerful um it it combines so many different things i mean it's you know there's times when it has some real hard charging guitar um but it also has some some quieter moments um, you got Clapton with that falsetto coming in sometimes, which is so perfectly done. Um, and I mean, this is just on a gut-wrenching album. You know, do you want to see me crawl across the floor to you? Do you want to hear me? Do you want to hear me beg to you to take me back? I'll gladly do it because I don't want to fade away. Give me one more day, please. I don't want to fade away. In your heart, I want to stay. It's, I mean, that is like the, uh, it's a microcosm of this album and it's one of my favorite songs. Yeah, lyrically, microcosm of the album, absolutely. And I think if I had to choose uh, one lyric that best encapsulates just how fucked up and sad Clapton was during the making of this album, it comes from Bell Bottom Blues. And the lyric would be, if I could choose a place to die, it would be in your arms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, that is really just sad. My God. And it's and it, and that's the beginning of the song. I mean, it just comes out and like punches you in the face. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's 
it's it's a heavy but beautiful song and the falsetto right i mean the falsetto is so perfect oh, the falsetto is incredible everything it's got this great verse uh this this incredibly infectious refrain with that falsetto uh and i don't feel that it, it bears off into that loud overwhelming blues thing that some of the other tracks have going for it it remains just a beautiful straightforward rock and roll song yeah i mean yeah i mean there's you know you can hear blues elements but i think he really you know he he makes it his own um it's just so good I, you know i think it's probably the best the best clapton song in any group or solo out there I would have to agree. In fact, um, I guess this is a good segue because My Zenith, no surprise here, is track number two, Bell Bottom Blues. Um, yeah. We're, we're two for three this week. Um, right, right. Yeah, man. I mean, you, you said everything there is to say about this song. It's emotional, gut-wrenching. It's a catchy tour de force. In a career that has spanned nearly 60 years, think about that, nearly 60 years, I think this one song right here is Eric Clapton's finest moment. Um, y yes, even better than Blue Eyes Blue off of the Runaway Bride soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> great movie. Great movie. Great, great, great soundtrack, actually. Um, <laughs> you know, you would have thought reuniting... Julia Roberts and Richard Gere, 10 years after Pretty Woman, it would have been another hit. Uh, the movie didn't do that well, but uh, you know, I, I thought it was okay. <laughs> I'll take Dr. T and the women over that, but uh, if we're talking Gear movies, but you know, whatever. Great, great film, Dr. T and the women. Yeah, but let's get back to Bell Bottom Blues. <laughs> I mean, it is just, um, it, it is just complete perfection. It really is, and it, it's gut-wrenching, it's heartfelt, it's emotional, it's beautiful, and it's, it's just incredibly catchy, it's, it's everything. Yeah, perfect song, perfect song. I and would you, agree. You know, I think, as with this entire album, I mean, when you, when you hear the backstory uh, about him and Patty Boyd, it's, uh, it just adds, you know, when you know that this is, I mean, this is coming straight from the gut uh, for him, and it, it just adds a whole other layer of emotion to it. If I'm Patty Boyd, you know, over the years, and someone says to her, you know, you've had all these songs that were written about you, uh, you know, what one do you think's the best? I wonder what she goes with. I mean, most people want her to say something by uh, the Beatles, but I think it would be pretty amazing if she's like, oh, Bell Bottom Blues is the greatest song that's ever been written about me. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. But you have to admire George Harrison and his, his taste in women, and same thing with Eric Clapton. I mean, Jesus, when you look at John Lennon, you think about all those songs he wrote for Yoko Ono, seriously? <laughs> uh, well. <laughs> so... How well, Chris, do you think this album captures the cultural zeitgeist of the era? Uh, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know that it's really trying to. I mean, certainly it's got, you know, 70s classic rock guitar. 
all of that, but there's, it's so heavily influenced by the blues um, that I, to me, it's kind of its own, it's kind of its own thing. Um, plus when you throw in five cover songs, you know, one of which dates back to like the 12th century, um, you know, I, yeah, I, to me, it doesn't, uh, the sound is, is I think, you know, pretty 70s classic rock, but I don't, I don't know that I would say this is like held up as a, a big piece of the zeitgeist. To me, it's, it's kind of its own thing. What do you think? I agree with you musically that it doesn't really go out of its way to capture the zeitgeist of the era. In fact, you hit the hammer on the nail because it's so heavily blues influenced, blues influenced rather, it's, it's hard to tell if it's 1970 or 1979 or something in yeah. the late 60s. Sure. Um, so I guess that's a good thing in that it's got a timeless quality, the music. But I will say that I think the backstory of this album, which we've spent a lot of time discussing for the last half hour or so, is what makes it potentially capture the cultural zeitgeist of the early 1970s. Because if you think about it, that backstory, you've got Eric Clapton, who was anywhere and everywhere in 1970 and was considered a god at that point. Uh, you have Dwayne Allman who was another upcoming rock god whose life would be tragically cut short less than a year later. You have a lot of whiskey, cocaine, and heroin. Mm. And above all else, you have a crazy-ass love triangle involving one of the Beatles. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's, that's a good point. <laughs> you know, like in that respect, the, the history of the album, the making of the album, the circumstances that led to the making of the album, in my opinion, make this capture the cultural zeitgeist more so than the music that's actually on the album. Yeah, I think that's a good point. It's a good point. I mean, it's, oh man. I, you know, I keep coming back to, if you're Eric Clapton and you are one of the most famous guitarists, one of the greatest guitarists in the world, you are the man but you're in love with the girl who's with George Harrison. Like, it's like the one guy that's cooler than you. Um, it would have been fine if he was in love with like whoever Ringo was with. Well, exactly, yeah, that would have been no contest, yeah. yeah no contest at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway. Um, any particular memories associated with this album, pop culture references that uh, stick out in your mind? Well, I think, you know, I. I hadn't heard this album until I was probably in my 20s. I think, I mean, I had heard some of the songs. Obviously, I'd heard Layla, um, which we haven't even talked much about Layla, but, uh, you know, some may say it's a little played out at this point, but my God, what a song Layla is. Um, you know, right down to the the Jim Gordon, this Jim Gordon on the piano outro, right? Um, I think. Um, no, I think that's Whitlock, but um, there's, there's, we'll get to that in a moment. All right, well, but, um, regardless, I mean, you got this album for me for my birthday. Uh, we were... Very nice. Of it was, and, um, you know, I put it on, and, and right away, I mean, I was familiar with Clapton, obviously, but uh, I can remember hearing Bell Bottom Blues for the first time and just thinking, oh, my God, like, <laughs> how have I not heard this before? Um, and I think calling, you know, calling or texting you and... and being like, this album's great, and Bell Bottom Blues, my God, it's, uh, it's incredible. Um, Beautiful, it's a work of art. 
Yeah, yeah. And I can also remember, you know, first getting into Layla. I mean, I came onto that one kind of late, probably in high school, because he did the, you know, the unplugged version of Layla, which, right. you know, everybody was crazy for. I was never too... I never liked the unplugged. You like the unplugged? No, never, never. Yeah. No, and I, I kind of didn't get what the big deal was. And, and then... I started listening to the original and I thought, oh man, I mean, that is just one of the iconic guitar riffs of, of all time. It's, it's so good. I mean, and I think, I think Clapton's one of those guys who he, he has that ability. He's so good at what he does to make you stop in your tracks and to have those moments that you never forget when you first hear, uh, you know, certain riffs that he plays. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. How about you? You know, usually I go with a particular memory associated with the album, but uh, this time I'm going with a pop culture reference or something that uh, I think is, is, some might consider the obvious choice. Oh, I think I know but, where you're going. Uh, yeah, yeah. Where am I going with this? Are you going with Goodfellas? I am. Yeah, the Piano Exit to Layla montage from Goodfellas. Oh, so good. I, it's, it's interesting. I never liked Layla as a song all that much, particularly that unplugged version. But I absolutely positively love and still love to this day the uh, piano exit. And that montage in Goodfellas, in my opinion, is quite possibly one of the, it's one of my favorite moments in film history. Um, and anytime I hear the piano exit, it's the first thing I think of. Because you have this beautiful piano melody soaring, the kind of melody that would make Elton John or Billy Joel envious, right? And you're listening to it, watching the film. And it's just a montage of dead bodies turning up in dumpsters, <laughs> meat lockers, uh, two people in a pink Cadillac with bullet holes in their head. Um, it's insane. It's Scorsese at his best. Right. Um, and, you know, it, it's been often said, and I have to agree, that Goodfellas stops being fun, stops being engaging right after this montage ends. And I think Scorsese's decision to use this piece of music at this moment in the film. Although I, I think he uh, consults with Robbie Robertson from the band. That's mm -hmm. his kind of uh, music guru to help him choosing music for his films. But whoever the hell made the decision, um, using that piece at that moment in the film makes complete sense. Because when you watch Goodfellas, at the end of that montage, you realize the fun is over. Shit's about to hit the fan. And the piano exit kind of plays as this unraveling of sorts for the characters that you've been watching for two hours up until that point and an unraveling of their lifestyle. And it's kind of the same thing that was happening to Eric Clapton when you think about it, right? Yeah. Um, everything was just going to shit. And it's this, this beautiful, what, four or five minute piano exit um, just encapsulates all that. The interesting thing about this, um, the, the piano exit, you mentioned Jim Gordon before, uh, who might have written it, um, Bobby Whitlock, who probably played it. Um, do you know who claims to have written the piano exit to Layla? I do. I actually do. Yeah. <laughs> um, Rita Coolidge. Yeah, right. Who was Jim Gordon's ex-girlfriend. Yes. Apparently they were dating at the time. And in, so for those of you listening, if you don't know who Rita Coolidge is, it's okay. 
you know, don't feel like you're not uh, okay in our book. Uh, she was a. I don't know. You should just read a Coolidge. <laughs> well, no, come on, man. She had what? Two hits. She had <laughs> yeah, yeah, a hit yeah. with a cover of Voss Gags, We're All Alone. Right. And then the theme to James Bond's Octopussy, which was a song called All Time High, which right. I quite like. But in her 2016 autobiography, Rita Coolidge claims that she did, in fact, write the piano exit to Layla, but never received credit for it. Maybe, you know, she was afraid to confront Jim Gordon because he would have bashed her skull in. I don't know. <laughs> for good reason, yeah. But it's shocking to me that Rita Coolidge might have written this. Equally shocking is the fact that somebody actually decided to publish Rita Coolidge's autobiography, <laughs> right? Like, seriously, man, what's next? Like, this Christmas is, you know, are they going to give us the uh, salacious tell-all by Maureen McGovern? <laughs> they just might. They just might. Right. We, need, we need content in this era, John. Although, you know, her theme song to the original Superman film was incredible. Remember, Can You Read My Mind? No. Not if you could read my mind by you know, the great Gordon Lightfoot, but oh, yeah. if you could read my mind, Maureen McGovern. Anyway, I, yeah. I digress. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I don't know how you prove this. If Rita Coolidge did, in fact, write the piano exit to Layla, but it's a shocking claim as far as I'm concerned. It is because it's such an iconic uh, you know, piece of music right there. Um, it really is. And it just it adds another layer of... Uh, of intrigue to this album, I think. And there's a lot of intrigue to this album. No doubt. Um, what do you think? Perfect album, yes or no? I, I don't think so. I think it's an amazing album. It's, it's one of the all-time greats, but you know, we've talked about some of the uneven parts of it. Um, I think with a few snips here and there, um, maybe it would be perfect, but you know, I, I also, I mean, to be fair, I don't think it's trying to be one of these, you know, perfect, perfectly contained albums. I think it's by nature sort of sprawling and has kind of a jam session feel to it in a lot of places. And Exactly. Um, but yeah, I don't think it's perfect, but it's still amazing. I agree with you. I, I so wanted to say yes, because there are just so many incredible songs and moments um, in the course of this 75-minute album. And it has that sort of mythical fable quality that surrounds it. You know, the, yeah. the, the love triangle, the Nizami Persian poetry, the <laughs> heroine, um, Jim Gordon bashing his mother's skull in. But <laughs> I think it suffers, Chris, from the same issue that a lot of Rock's most famous double albums suffer from. It, it can feel a little bloated and just to be a little too much sometimes. I'm talking about the Beatles' White Album, uh, or an album we talked about last season, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, Elton John. Exactly. Terrific album. Exactly. Just too much. Yeah. Uh, Genesis, The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, Pink Floyd's The Wall, I Can Go On. Yeah. Um, the only one that maybe works is Exile on Main Street by the Rolling Stones, but even that I would question. I think there are some amazing moments, absolutely amazing songs on this album. But as I said earlier, I think the album falls off a bit, particularly mm. in the middle, uh, before regaining its momentum three quarters of the way through. If the album just consisted of tracks one through six and then tracks 11 through 14, it would be absolutely perfect in every way. 
but it, it just falls off a bit in the middle. But I think you said something really important, Chris, and that is that the album's not trying to be perfect. It's, it's a jam session uh, that Clapton said, let's record. And uh, it, that's probably what it was. And I think he probably just needed to keep himself busy in the midst of all the shit that he was going through. And he didn't intend for this to be perfection. He just wanted to record some songs and, and play with some talented musicians. And yeah. God, did he ever achieve that? Absolutely. Well, that's all I think I have to say about that. It's a hell of an album, uh, perfect or not. Wouldn't you agree that it's uh, it's something that everyone should take a listen to? Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, you know, you can let us know what you think um, at podcast closely on Twitter or at listenclosely.podcast on Instagram. What is you know? Let us know if you think we're completely missing it, and if uh, it should be an hour and fifteen minutes long. We could be I'm wrong. Curious to hear. We could be wrong. Sometimes we are. Yeah. Chris, as always, thank you. And I look forward to chatting with you again next week. Sounds good, John. Always a pleasure. Be well.